Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday morning, the day after Election Day 2023. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And we have a great uh, segment coming up on the program. And uh, joining me is author Johnny Smith, and he is the author of uh, five books, uh, one of them called Blood Brothers, The uh, Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. His latest book, just out, I mean just out, hot off the presses, is Jump Man, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. And Johnny, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it is our pleasure, and uh, congratulations on the terrific reviews that you've uh, already received about this book. I, I want to quote from uh, one of them, and I'll, I'll quote here. Other Michael Jordan books have shown the what's and where's and why's, and now Jumpman, an essential, an essential addition to the canon, explains what it all cost. What does that reviewer mean? And I don't think it's money in this case. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wright Thompson, a uh, fantastic writer for ESPN, um, grateful for the blurb that he wrote there. I think he's speaking to the fact that one of the major themes of my book, Jumpman, is how fame changed Michael Jordan. You know, by the end of the 1991 season, after Jordan has won his first NBA championship, the Bulls beat the Lakers and Magic Johnson, you know, he is, he is burned out. And what I try to show in the book is over the course of that period between 90 and 91, the demands on him um, are wearing on, on Michael Jordan. He is struggling under the pressures off the court. You know, he's trying to win that first title. Uh, playing under Phil Jackson, who has installed uh, this new triangle offense. Um, there's tension between Jordan, the general manager, Jerry Krause. Um, and at the same time, there's uh, people who are asking him to use his platform to be a voice for civil rights, uh, to endorse Harvey Gantt in his Senate uh, campaign in North Carolina, Jordan's home state. And so Jordan is struggling under the weight of the, the, the burden of expectation. And after he wins that title, he's becoming disillusioned with things. That reporters are becoming, in his mind, more invasive. And so he starts to question this um, publicity machine that made him. Because now he's seeing some of the, the negative effects of how it, it's changed his life and, and the way the public wants more and more pieces of the Michael Jordan story. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And uh, l let's talk about the three of the uh, constant figures who were around Michael Jordan during his historic time in Chicago and, and the way they've been described. Uh, the greedy Bulls owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, his opportunistic agent, David Falk, and paranoid general manager, Jerry Krause. So let's start with uh, Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, how, uh, did, how did his greed come into play? Well, I think what one review was referring to there is that, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf was a man who cared mostly that, well, besides making lots of money, but he cared mostly about being seen as a respected businessman. He was not so much concerned about being liked. And one of the things I write about in the book is how in Chicago, uh, Reinsdorf 
was not someone that the public loved, in large part because, as owner of the Chicago White Sox, he had threatened to move the team to Florida. And it's a long, sort of complicated story. And in the end, though, he's able to get public tax dollars to help build a new ballpark for the White Sox. And he was, you know, excoriated in the press for his move. Uh, he basically suggested years later that he wasn't really serious about leaving the city, but he wanted to convince uh, Chicago politicians and Illinois representatives that he was going to take the White Sox away. And so, you know, I think a lot of sports fans in Chicago, they disliked Reinsdorf because they felt that he was manipulative, um, that all he cared about was the bottom line, that he didn't care about the people. Now, what's interesting about that is that during um, the early part of the 1990-91 season, Reinsdorf gets into uh, an argument, a, a legal argument, with NBA Commissioner David Stern, because at that time the league wanted to limit the number of superstation uh, basketball games that aired on TV. At that time, Reinsdorf had a deal with WGN to broadcast a select number of games on WGN all across the country. Well, David Stern's position was, by doing that, you're going to be drawing people to Chicago Bulls games on WGN when we want fans all across the country watching NBA games on uh, TNT. So, ultimately, the league wants to limit the number of games that Reinsdorf can show on WGN. Reinsdorf and WGN, they sue Stern. And when Reinsdorf testifies and makes his case uh, before a judge, he explains, look, I've got a limited opportunity here with Michael Jordan. I need to build a fan base, a young fan base around Michael Jordan, and I want to make the Bulls America's team. He saw Jordan as the, the meal ticket, so to speak, to help him grow his business, earn more profits, and to turn the Bulls into a national brand. No doubt, and uh, he, he did that. How, how was that finally resolved, that uh, WGN issue? Yeah, Reinsdorf wins. Basically, the judge says that um, the Bulls retain the right to sell the broadcasting rights to any games that were not included in the NBA's arrangements with NBC and the Turner Network. So, ultimately, uh, Stern loses that one. But what's interesting is that the other owners in the NBA – Oh, they couldn't stand Jerry Reinsdorf because during the discovery price process, it was revealed that Reinsdorf and other owners were underreporting their revenues, which meant uh, that they were in violation of the collective bargaining agreement, which required that the owners pay 53% of revenues in player salaries. So the owners were suppressing the real numbers that they were earning, so they wouldn't pay as high in salaries. The players' union sues the owners. Uh, they settle out of court. But <laughs> this is why, you know, Ryan Stork was seen as greedy, and some of his fellow owners thought that he was a knucklehead for um, undermining the position of the fellow owners. Of course, the players thought, this is great, because now we've got a, a, a microscope on what the owners are doing behind closed doors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's talk about his opportunistic agent, David Falk. Yeah, David Falk. I think Falk is a really interesting figure. Uh, in 1984, Falk w 
is able to uh, land the, the major night deal. And this was critical because then after Jordan gets the Nike deal, he could leverage it into deals with other major corporations. And false position was, you know, the Nike deal makes sense because uh, Jordan is representing a company where he's seen as an authentic spokesman. He's selling basketball shoes, he's selling uh, basketball apparel, and so on. But false vision was bigger than basketball. He wanted to connect Jordan to what he called all-American brands that sold products all around the world. So what does he do? He gets Jordan deals with McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Chevrolet, and later Gatorade. And those business deals are the foundation for Michael Jordan becoming the most famous American in the world, certainly the most successful endorser in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we look back on it, this is a major point I try to make in the book. No one predicted this was going to happen. Uh, you know, Falk had said that, you know, in 1984, there weren't a lot of opportunities for black NBA players to get endorsement deals. You know, most of the endorsement deals in the world of shoes, they were standard contracts. Converse had um, a bunch of NBA players uh, on their books, Isaiah Thomas, Julius Serving, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and they all wore the same shoe, just in different colors. There had never been this singular investment from a footwear company in a single athlete. They took great risk, and they built an entire campaign, an entire, entire shoe line uh, around Jordan. It was unprecedented. And, you know, looking back on that moment, um, Phil Knight, Nike's uh, founder and CEO, he liked to call himself the branch Ricky of sports marketing. And what he meant by that was the fact that you know, black athletes at that time, they were not the face of major campaigns. It just didn't happen. There were certainly some endorsement deals for Magic Johnson and Julius Irving, but nothing like what was happening with Michael Jordan. It was a transformational, transformational moment in the culture. Well, it's a fascinating book. Johnny, can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Yeah, of course. All right. Well, we'll get you the paranoid uh, general manager, Jerry Krause, right right after the break. It is uh, Kale & Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Our guest, Johnny Smith, the book Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. We'll be right back. Kale and Company Live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com on this Wednesday. Our guest is Johnny Smith, author of the book Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of uh, Michael Jordan. You can't miss the book. It's got the jump on the uh, on the front cover that made Nike famous. Uh, the, Michael, <laughs> the Michael Jordan jump that's on uh, so many uh, Nike items and, and what have you. And a uh, great book uh, by, by Johnny. And uh, we, we, we didn't get in our first segment to the, uh, the paranoid general manager of the Chicago Bulls, uh, Jerry Krause. Tell us about Jerry. <laughs> he was incredibly paranoid. Um, and I think that paranoia came from deep insecurities rooted in a childhood of, of trauma. Um, you know, this is a guy who, when he was setting his sights on drafting Scotty Pippen, he thought that 
you know, Pippen coming from a small college in Arkansas, that he had, you know, found a gem uh, that no one had really knew about. Okay, he wants to basically hide Pippen in <laughs> in Hawaii somewhere before the draft and have him not participate in these pre-draft workouts. Of course, Pippen's agents like, you know, you're nuts. We're not going to do that. Um, but but Kraus would wear disguises. When he would scout Pippen and other players, he would wear a trench coat and pull a hat over his face as if, you know, if other scouts saw him and knew he was interested in a player, that it would give away, you know, his plans. I mean, this guy was secretive, and he was someone who struggled to connect with people. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that I think this is a guy who, who struggled um, with insecurity, and... Um, one story that stood out to me that, that stunned me uh, was that Jerry Price would often talk about when he was going to sign African-American black players, you know, um, I can relate to experiencing discrimination. I'm a Jewish man. Uh, I face terrible anti-Semitism in Chicago. In my high school, I was bullied for being Jewish. And when this comment from Krauss was published in a Sports Illustrated profile, um, a group of his Jewish classmates from his high school wrote a letter to the editor and said, we didn't experience terrible anti-Semitism in our school. Actually, we had very good relations in our school. And I thought, wow, you know, what would, what would move Jerry Krause to exaggerate um, that kind of treatment in his school? I think part of it is the fact that he wanted to be seen as someone who triumphed who overcame long odds. You know, this is a guy who's unathletic, uh, who struggled to make friends. He started as a, a, a copy boy in a newsroom. Uh, then he goes on, of course, to be a scout in Major League Baseball in the NBA and eventually becomes general manager of the Bulls. And then he's always being told, well, if the Bulls win an NBA title, it won't be because of anything you did, Jerry. You've got Michael Jordan. And so he's always out to prove himself. But I think the worst thing for, for Krause's relationship with Jordan, of course, is when Jordan broke his foot in 1986. And, and Jordan uh, wanted to come back sooner than the doctors uh, wanted to. And Reinsdorf was uh, concerned about having Jordan get back out on the court and he hurt his foot again. And during one of these heated meetings when Jordan's like, you know, I know my body, I'm ready, Krause says to him, your bold property now. We tell you what to do. And this, of course, was an affront to Jordan. You know, it comes across as this paternalistic white man telling Jordan that he's not a free man. And Jordan, you know, he insists on maintaining control of his body. He does not want to be reduced to some commodity owned by Reinsdorf and Krauss. He doesn't want to be deprived of his autonomy. And I think it's speaks to Jordan's drive for independence. And that's one of the themes of the book that I tried to emphasize, that Jordan didn't want to be defined by anyone on the court or off the court except himself. He wanted to make his own decisions. He wanted to carve his own path. And that's a big part, I think, of understanding the way he approached himself uh, or the way he approached the court and the way he made decisions off the court. Well, we talked about, uh, you talked about just a moment ago how the paranoid uh, GM Jerry Krause tried to hide 
Scottie Pippen uh, pre-draft. What was the relationship? We know it was, you know, incredible on the court. What was the relationship off the court between uh, Jordan and Pippen? Well, it's interesting. Uh, since the last dance documentary came out in 2020, uh, Scotty has made it clear that they were never particularly close, that Jordan really didn't socialize with his teammates, which was true in many ways. You know, I think that from Michael, he came to work, and he saw his teammates as his colleagues. Um, so, you know, I don't think that uh, they were ever particularly close. Maybe at different moments, at different times throughout the careers, uh, they were closer than others. But I also think that Jordan helped make Pippen a better player. You know, Pippen is undoubtedly one of the greatest perimeter defenders in history. Part of that comes from the fact that he was guarding Michael Jordan in practice every day, you know, having to push himself. And he, you know, became an incredible defender um, and a great all-around offensive player as well. I think for the Bulls during those years, particularly the first three championship years, you know, they, they looked to Scotty in some ways for leadership that Jordan couldn't provide. You know, Jordan was not someone who's going to give you a rah-rah speech to build you up. He was going to push you, and he was going to get in your ear if you weren't doing your job. And sometimes, you know, teammates, they, they struggled under the weight of being uh, in Michael's shadow. But Scotty was the kind of guy who could put his arm around you and say, hey, if you miss that last shot, keep shooting. I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you the ball. And Phil Jackson said that, you know, with Scotty, the reason his, his teammates really admired him uh, and respected him because they, they knew he wouldn't give up on that. He would continue to feed them the ball. And Phil thought that part of Scotty's strength as, as being a great teammate was the fact that he came from a large family. You know, I think the Pippins had, I think, like seven or eight kids, a uh, very poor family in rural Arkansas. Scotty knew how to find his place within a large community like a team. And so... Um, but ultimately, I think it's very sad now to see that um, Scotty, I think, feels marginalized uh, by the last dance, that he felt that the story was you know, entirely built around Jordan, which it was. Uh, but that, that, that Pippen and the other teammates in the making of that film were seen as insignificant. Of course, that's not true. Uh, the Bulls wouldn't have won any championships if it hadn't been for Scotty Pippen being a great wingman and a Hall of Fame player alongside Jordan. When uh, Phil Jackson joined the Bulls as head coach, he, he brought in the uh, triangle offense, and uh, Michael was not a, a particular fan of that idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was not. And I think, again, this goes back to the idea of independence. Jordan sees the triangle as Phil's asking me to give up control of the ball. He wants to put the ball in the hands of players that can't come through in the clutch. That's Michael's reaction. Michael believes, I don't need some system to score. I can score at will. And Phil's like, yeah, you're right. You don't need a system. But the problem is right now is that the defenses, they're completely focused on you. And if you look at what the Pistons did in the playoffs, they don't have to worry about anybody else. They can just build their entire defensive wall near the rim around you and continue to pound you and hound you, and we'll keep doing what we're doing. We'll go get to the Eastern Conference Finals. 
but we won't beat the Pistons. Jackson's position is defenses need to know that you're going to pass, that you're going to give up the ball to keep them on their heels. You've got to be willing to keep your teammates involved. And the other key decision that Jackson makes for the 1990-91 season is he puts the ball in Scotty Pippen's hand more. Scotty was coming off first All-Star game, and he puts them in this position he called the point forward. You know, Pippen was a six foot seven small forward, but he was an excellent ball handler, had great court vision, and you know, Jackson thought that in some ways he could sort of be like Magic Johnson. Not as great of a passer as Magic, but that his height and his court vision would allow him to utilize those skills to see over the defense and take some of the attention away from Michael. And it worked. It really worked. And I think the other thing that people forget about that first championship season is that the Bulls were the best defense in the NBA. I think they averaged uh, only like 92 points per game by their opponents, and they were a suffocating defense. They were great. They could cover you from uh, end line to end line, press you in the backcourt. Jordan, Pippen, Horst Grant, who's a very athletic power forward at that time, and, and that, I think, was really the strength of that team. Well, Johnny, uh, we're running out of time, and it was a great conversation with you, and we just really scratched the surface of this uh, terrific (laughs) book. And uh, it's called Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan and Johnny Smith. Uh, The author has been our guest, and Johnny, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks for having me. It, uh, It is our pleasure. Thanks, Johnny. Johnny Smith, and uh, again, Jumpman uh, is the name of the book. Coming up, we will have more Kale & Company Live on this Wednesday morning, presented by Northeast Delta Dental, with individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. We'll take a break. We will continue after these words on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKSL, nhtalkradio.com, 1450 AM in the Concord area, 1039 on the FM dial in Concord and beyond, and a booming signal into Manchester at 101.9 on the FM dial. And uh, joining us is our resident horse racing tout, uh, the one and only Jim McIntyre. Jim, how are you this morning? Good morning to you, Ken. I'm doing great. It's an absolute pleasure to be uh, talking with you, as always. Well, and uh, people are going to find out you know uh, a lot more than just cryptocurrency. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, Ken, that you mentioned that, because when we did our our show a few weeks ago, the price of Bitcoin back then was yeah. $27,000 for one. Today, it's 35500 oh. so it's, it's almost like I know what I'm talking about. Jeez, wow. Boy, oh boy. And I, I was going to buy a few of those Bitcoins, but now, <laughs> now it's out of my price range completely. <laughs> completely. As it is for most of us. As yeah. it is for most people, Ken, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, you you alerted me to a story, and I know you follow the horse racing scene uh, very closely, a lot closer than uh, I do. I used to love to go, and I know you did too, 
to uh, Rockingham Park in Salem when uh, when it was open, and it's a, a shame we still don't have uh, horse racing in this state. But uh, that's a story for another day, which we'll get into. But you alerted me to uh, a heart-wrenching story uh, centering around the, the Breeders' Cup, which uh, took place uh, last weekend. So, so tell us about it. A truly amazing story, Ken, and I'll tell you, heart-wrenching can be one word to describe it. I think heartwarming could be well, uh, another way, too. So it's, true it's too. really it's a, it's a story about how people can choose to look at, at the positive side of things in life and, and the negative side of things in, in a way. Uh, but this story, I think, will hit most people. So I'm really, really happy that I get a, get a chance to talk to people. And I would ask anybody that's listening just to try and take a deep breath, clear your mind, and just listen to the power of, of life. And because there's so much negativity out there, and just to, just to take a breath and realize how powerful whatever it is that created us um, is. So there's a story that you, you can search and see this weekend, a, a real uh, big event for horse racing, the industry, really the biggest weekend in the history of, of uh, or each year in horse racing. It's called the Breeders' Cup. Most people know the Kentucky Derby. That's a race for three-year-old horses, a championship race for three-year-old horses. The Breeders' Cup that took place this weekend is a series of about uh, 12 races over the course of two days where they race horses of um, different ages against uh, each other. So all the three-year-olds will run in one race. Two-year-olds will run in, run in one race. All the older horses will run in certain races, and they're going short races, long races. They're going on dirt and grass. So that's a quick overview for people. One of the horses that ran in a race called the Dirt Mile. So it's a mile-long race on the dirt, and it's the very best horses from around the world. The horse that won that race this, this past weekend was named Cody's Wish. And so I want to talk a little bit about this horse, Cody's Wish. Is that okay, Ken? That is fine. That is true. All right. So I'll give you some backstory. Cody's Wish, this horse was born back in 2018. Okay. Usually as a horse, you start to run either when you're two years old or three years old. Cody's Wish started to run um, as, a, as a three-year-old. So its first race was in June of 2021. So since June of 2021, Cody's Wish has run in 16 races. Mm. 11 times it finished first, one time second, four times it finished third. Over the course of those 16 races, Cody's Wish brought in to, their own, to his owner $3,100,000. Wow. So that's how much purse money yep. Cody's Wish has, has brought in. How did it win that much money? By winning the very best races against the very best one-mile running horses. You know, some people can, can run uh, full steam for 50 yards, right? we got a 50-meter dash, 50-yard dash. Some people can run a mile. Some people run marathons. Cody's Wish was a miler. That's best, you know, it, its best event was running the one mile, and it was the very best in the world, and it has been really for the past year and a half. Well, that's the story about the horse. What makes this an exceptional story that should be shared across the world is that there, the horse was named after a young man by the name of Cody Dorman. Uh, Cody Dorman was born with a genetic disorder called Wolf Hirshhorn. Uh, syndrome. I would tell you honestly, I don't know a ton about the, the disease or the disorder, but it limits the ability 
for, for humans to, to move and speak. So Cody Doman, uh, I noticed a number of times over the last few years because he followed the horse and had a tremendous relationship with the horse. In fact, the horse Cody's Wish was named after Cody Dorman, and I'll talk to you about that um, uh, more in a second here, but Cody Dorman was not able to talk, was confined to a wheelchair, and really couldn't move. Um, 17 years old, I would see the interviews over the last year and a half, and on the telecast for the horse racing events, Ken, they would share stories about the relationship between the horse and Cody, the boy that, that... uh, you know, the horse was named after. Right. And what stood out to me and what I learned more through doing research is through um, the, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Cody Dorman a few years ago won a trip to go to visit a farm in Kentucky. And Godolphin Farm is what it was named. Godolphin is a big horse racing ownership group. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Cody Dorman goes there. Apparently, there were 40 horses, like younger horses, two-year-olds, that were around the, the, the farm, the running area there, and they said, you know, pick a horse. We'll introduce you to the horse. So this was the first time Cody Dorman had seen, you know, uh, this horse up front. Well, they picked this one. It comes over, puts its head on the kid's lap in his chair, and you can tell there's an instant connection there. Wow. Well, that's the horse that goes on to become named Cody's Wish. That's that is, the horse I described to you about how incredible it ran. Sorry, go ahead, Ken. What a story. No, I mean, it's just an amazing story. It truly is. It truly is. And I, I know it's been highlighted on, on racing coverage, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, it has a marginal audience uh, in, in these days. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought it to our attention. It is just such an amazing story. And, uh, and tell, tell us the, the, the rest of the story, which, uh, you know, is, is, is quite sad. Exactly. So that catches everybody up until this weekend. The ownership group had decided this past race at the Breeders' Cup, the Dirt Mile, was going to be Cody's Wish's uh, last race because there's a ton of money in horse racing for horses to go to stud afterwards and make babies. So they're going to retire the horse. It's had a great career. Saturday, it runs its last race. I watched it on TV. It wins by a couple of inches, just fighting off another horse. They were even banging down the stretch. It was a wicked, exciting race. Cody's uh, wish wins the race. Fantastic. I shut off the TV. I'm happy because everybody, they're, they're talking about how thankful they are, what a relationship with Cody Dorman this is. Incredible. I wake up on uh, Monday morning this week, and I look through the news, and I see a story. Cody Dorman passed away on Sunday on the flight back from California to Kentucky, where his hometown was. So the kid, Cody Dorman, had flown out to San Anita Park. It's out in California to watch this huge race and watch the last race of the horse's career, which he wins by a couple of inches, like I mentioned. On the way home, that kid, 17 years old, passes away mm. and i just think that man there's such a connection with whatever like i said created us the spiritual life and everybody's got their own views on stuff but to think that that's just a coincidence to me is like i don't know that, that, that you need to think a little harder because something's happened and there was quite a relationship between that horse 
and that young man. No, no doubt about it. Uh, what what uh, an amazing story it is, Jim, and uh, I, I'm so glad that you contacted me to uh, to uh, have you talk about it on, on the radio because I, I'm sure very few people really, you know, with everything else that's going on in the world today, uh, you know, that's kind of overshadowed, but it is such a, a terrific uh, story of a, uh, of a young man who, who could not, could barely move, if, if at all, uh, could not talk. Uh, and and yet had this uh, love for the horse, and and the horse had this this love for Cody, and uh, it is just a, a story that really brings tears to your eyes. It really does. But, it did to me. Yep. I, when I read yeah. the story, I cried just knowing that uh, that kid died happy. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Jim McIntyre, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it as always. And Have we, a good rest of the day, Ken. We we will talk to you soon. That is uh, Jim McIntyre. He knows horse racing. He knows uh, cryptocurrency. I don't think there's anything the man doesn't know. Uh, We'll be back and uh, talk a little bit uh, about what happened uh, yesterday in a a few of the elections around the state right here on Kale & Company Live, WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stand by for more. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. It's the day after Election Day 2023. One year away from the presidential election. And just a couple of months away from the first in the nation primary right here in the great state of New Hampshire. And uh, tonight will be the third, by the way, the third Republican debate. Uh, this time from the sun and fun capital of the world, as they used to call it. Or maybe they still do. Uh, Miami Beach. And uh, Chris Christie will be there. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy. And there was some talk that uh, Vivek uh, might not participate in this one, but he is. The field now has been uh, you know, winnowed to, uh, to five contestants. Uh, which is going to make it a little bit easier to tolerate on the ears, I think, uh, if you tune in tonight and uh, watch the third Republican presidential debate with Christie, DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott. Locally, locally, big news in Concord. Uh, Concord will have a, a new mayor uh, for the first time in a long time as uh, Jim Boulay uh, decided that he was not going to run again after serving the city so well for so many years. And the new mayor-elect of the city of Concord is Byron Champlin. And uh, we congratulate Byron on his uh, resounding victory, uh, receiving over 74% of the votes cast, uh, beating out two opponents by, uh, as we mentioned, a wide margin, Kate West and George Jack. So congratulations to Byron. Hope to have Byron on the show in the not-too-distant future. And uh, Jay Rue. Jay Rue, as I, I believe that's the way he pronounces his name. I've heard a couple of different pronunciations. But uh, Jay Rue is the mayor-elect in Manchester in a uh, tough battle with Kevin Kavanaugh. A tough one, but a very civil one. And Kevin Kavanaugh, who was in the studio a couple of months ago, 
uh, lost out 51 to 49 percent to Jay Rue. And uh, Kevin Kavanaugh, I heard him on television last night uh, saying it was a very civil uh, campaign. There was no name calling, uh, nothing like that. They stuck to the issues, and uh, that would be great if more uh, campaigns uh, were like that. And uh, so it was a good race in Manchester. Rue coming out on top, the new mayor-elect in the Queen City. Jim Donchus will be back as uh, mayor of Nashua. Jim has served uh, that city uh, for a long time. Uh, by the way, uh, Kino was defeated in Portsmouth. Surprise, surprise. Uh, 52 to 48 percent. Kino defeated in Portsmouth. It wasn't even on the ballot uh, in Concord, I guess. Uh, they've given up that ship. And uh, Rochester passed a sports betting location. So Rochester will have a place where you can uh, Bet on sports in the not-too-distant future. That passed 53 to 47%. So that was the uh, the latest on uh, what took place uh, last night. And uh, there were all kinds of uh, elections, but uh, can't get into all of them. We'd be here all day if, if we uh, had uh, all the uh, election results uh, for you. But uh, they are available uh, online. Some lawmakers, how about this one? Kat and I were talking about this before the show today. Some lawmakers are trying to make New Hampshire the 14th state in the union to make owning kangaroos without permits legal. So you don't need a you, you, you won't need a permit anymore for your kangaroo. How about that, sports fans? Timey kangaroo down sport. Two bills are being proposed that would allow ownership of kangaroos in New Hampshire. One would let Granite Staters own the animals as pets, while the other would allow kangaroos to be farmed as food. Believe it or not, Cat, I have had kangaroo. Really? I have. Oh, gosh. And I can tell you exactly where it was, too. I, I can't tell you the name of the restaurant, but uh, it was in Binghamton, New York. Uh, when I was with the uh, the Manchester Monarchs as, as their broadcaster, we were there. We had an off night in Binghamton. Nothing like an off night in Binghamton, New York to get out and uh, hit the high life. And, <laughs> and eat kangaroo, <laughs> and eat kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might have had uh, a couple of uh, adult beverages prior to doing this. I'd probably need it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but you know what? Honestly, as I recall, and this was, you know, a number of years ago now, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Uh, but as I recall, if they served me that same dish and didn't call it kangaroo, call it like chicken something, I don't think I would have known the difference. Really? Really. It was not bad. <laughs> it wasn't bad. I mean, it, it, it's kind of disgusting to think you're you know you're eating kangaroo but uh but it wasn't bad wow. uh <laughs> so <laughs> well, guys, yeah, I, kangaroos. It, it, it wasn't i don't know if they serve <laughs> kangaroo anywhere around here but they did serve it in binghamton at one time only in new hampshire yeah, yeah. <laughs> we see news articles <laughs> like this we we may well we would be the 14th state that uh, would not need you would not need a permit cat to own a kangaroo how bizarre yeah this <laughs> 
It's just so strange. I was telling Ken this this morning because I was reading it on the news and having an out-of-body experience while I was reading it. I couldn't believe it. What a day. Happy yeah. Wednesday, right? Yeah, I guess maybe, there, yeah. maybe it, you know, it would improve your jumping ability. I don't know. but. Uh, the uh, second bill would allow the uh, farming of kangaroos and and caribou as well. Uh, State Representative Michael Granger from uh, Milton Mills is sponsoring the bill and said he thought it was a goofy idea at first, but now he's, I get this, he's hopped on board. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. The bill sponsored by uh, Tom Mannion, who's a Republican from Pelham, uh, would uh, also allow private ownership of small-tailed monkeys, raccoons, foxes, otters, and skunks. <laughs> That's wow! Just uh, wow! Uh, now, Stephen Nass, uh, Stephen Nass, N-A-S-S, founder of the uh, Free State Food Network, wrote the bill after regulations for homestead food operations loosened in the past year. And Nass said we wanted to continue to expand on those freedoms this year and include more animals on that, he said. Ness said kangaroos are more suitable for small farms because they are not a herding animal. That's H-E-R-D-I-N-G. Uh, and, and Mr. Nass said that uh, he's originally from Wisconsin. There are kangaroos in Wisconsin. If they can have them in Wisconsin, we should have them right here. Uh, in the Granite State. And he said that uh, kangaroos have a smaller impact on the environment than cattle, requiring 70% less water than cattle. So there you go. Pouches and all, we may have kangaroo farming here in the Granite State. Who would have thunk, right? Who would have thunk? You know, it's a really, this is a random story. I'll be quick since we're coming up on commercial. But one time I did a road trip from New Hampshire to Las Vegas. Yeah. Drove. 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 It was a very long drive. Yeah. Okay. Once once I hit Kansas, okay, I'm driving along those roads. And if you've driven through Kansas, it's just long and daunting and exhausting because <laughs> you're just driving in a straight line for hours okay right, yeah it was probably around like four o'clock i turn to the left as i'm driving because i'm seeing big farmland it's very flat yeah and i'm quite literally watching an ostrich run really across the field and i thought i was having a problem <laughs> so i pulled over because i thought maybe i'm just really tired and I Googled it, and there was an, an emu farm, not an ostrich, emu. an emu farm emu. in yeah. Kansas. Wow. What is happening? <laughs> an what emu is farm. This? Isn't that well, so gotta, strange? got to come from somewhere, right? I just, <laughs> in the, you know, I just don't ask questions anymore. It just, it just is what it is. Oh, I can't wait to see this, uh, this boom of uh, uh, kangaroo farming uh, in, uh, in the state of New Hampshire. Having uh, having kangaroos uh, in New Hampshire with the the pouches and everything, oh. Hop, hopping around, you know, you never know. I saw some uh, wild turkeys today on the uh, on the uh, corner of uh, Loudon Road and Hazen Drive. So you know you're, you're liable to see anything, liable to see anything these days. And one one uh, one show business note, talking about liable to see anything these days. Boy George, the culture club icon of the 1980s, 
will be returning to Broadway, folks. Boy George, who I've actually seen in in concert once, and and he was very good. And I know our good friend Kitty Ray has seen him a couple. Of, I think she's seen him three or four times. Boy George puts on a great show. He's returning to Broadway in a, a great musical called Moulin Rouge. So there you go. And uh, so Boy George back on the Great White Way, as they used to say. All right. Thanks to our uh, guests this morning. Johnny Smith, author of Jump Man, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. And Jim McIntyre, our resident horse racing tout who uh, brought us the uh, the amazing story of uh, Cody's Wish right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Hey, tomorrow we're going to talk about the proposed, I don't know, amusement park on top of a mountain, which, mountain in California, which was going to be uh, another Disneyland on top of a mountain. It never happened, but Walt wanted it. Walt Disney wanted it. Never happened. All right, that will do it. Kale and company complete for another day. And folks, remember, always look on the bright side of life.